Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I recently had the pleasure, and it really was a pleasure, um, of talking with Xiaofei Tian about her recent book, Visionary Journeys, Travel Writings from Early Medieval and 19th Century China. And that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, Tian's book was interesting for me in so many ways. It's a study in comparative literary history, really in its most exciting form, and with a comparison that makes total sense and informs both sides of the story both the early medieval and the 19th century China story really wouldn't be the same without the other comparative case. And so it's, um, it's quite a thoughtfully conceived comparison in that way. There are so many thoughtful contributions that the book makes, not just to the study of travel writing and literature. Of course, um, it's, this should be required reading for anyone who's interested in the history of travel literature and writing, especially as it relates to China, um, but also to the history of seeing and observation and art history as well. It really helped me understand how to put Buddhism into greater dialogue with the histories of travel and of literature related to it. Um, And it's just, in many ways, a model of transdisciplinary humanistic scholarship. I hope you enjoy the book um, and enjoyed listening in on our recent conversation about it. Hello, Xiaofei. Hi, Carla. We're here today at the New Book Network to talk with Xiaofei Tian about her wonderful recent book, Visionary Journeys, Travel Writings from Early Medieval and 19th Century China. And that just came out in 2011 with Harvard University Press, and it's a Harvard University Asia Center book. Thank you so much for making time to talk with us about your book today, Xiaofei. Oh, thank you, Carla. It's my pleasure. Oh, it was um, for for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book. This is a really, really wonderful work, and it was um, especially a wonderful surprise because for those of us who aren't um, who are in Chinese history or history of science, it's not always that we will kind of pick up a book on Chinese poetry or Chinese literature and feel like it's completely relevant to what we're doing, right? I mean, there tend to be kind of disciplinary conventions um, that are different in the different fields we work in. Um, But this book really um, transcends that in this beautiful way that makes it feel like what you're writing is extraordinarily relevant and speaks to historians, anyone who's interested in poetry, in China, in travel, um, in genre, or in really more broadly work that transcends um, genre and discipline. So thank you so much. It was just a wonderful experience to read this. Well, thank you very much, Carla. You were very kind. <laughs> no, it, it was really a pleasure. Um, Xiaofei, can you start us up uh, or start us off a little bit by just saying a little bit about your background and may- maybe specifically what brought you to this topic in particular? Um, well, um, okay. Um, my background is, um, um, I suppose, um, well, I, I mainly, um, primarily, um, I'm interested in um, early medieval China, and I consider myself a um, scholar of literary studies and uh, um, primarily engaged in research in early medieval China. Um, but I have a very broad um, sort of interest. Um, and uh, um, since, you know, from a very early age, I'd be interested in classical Chinese literature, but actually I got my PhD in comparative literature. And so I do have a sort of very broad interest in uh, literature, world literature, uh, Chinese and European uh, literatures, um, but also um, in my in my own kind of writing and teaching, I not only teach uh, specialized courses on early medieval China, but I also teach and write about late imperial period and even a course um, actually in modern China <laughs> in the Cultural Revolution, to be specific. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, actually, my students in that class are going to have a symposium this very afternoon. So. <laughs> yeah, so um, as you can see, I myself kind of um, um, really kind of have a very sort of a wide range of uh, interests, uh, largely in literature um, and cultural studies and cultural history. Mm-hmm. 
Great. And what brought you to the topic of this book in particular, which really ranges, um, and, and this is one of the things that I that we'll certainly talk about, but it's a book that ranges from early medieval China through the 19th century and looks particularly mm-hmm. at travel writing, kind of broadly construed and related issues. So what brought you to this in particular? Okay. Um, well, <laughs> well, first of all, I love travel. <laughs> I, I just I, I love you know like physical travel, but I also kind of like the um, you know the mind travel and you know being in different places and really kind of uh, opens a lot of new vistas. So I'm always very interested in travel itself. I'm interested in travel writing, um, but this book, uh, specifically speaking about this book. Um, I guess it's really hard to talk about, um, I guess, one point of origin. You know, it's like in, in physical travel, we start from one single place. But in writing a book, I feel like it's very much like a under, you know, taking, you know, going on a journey. It's kind of hard. It's funny because it's hard to talk about one single point of, of origin. I guess, you know, um, I guess abstractly speaking, I guess I've just been noticing a lot of um, similarities between these two periods. Um, you know, um, the early medieval China um, that is, you know, especially this kind of, um, you know, I guess, to, I mean, from the first century through, um, you know, sixth, seventh century, I would say, and also the 19th century, because the two periods when uh, China really kind of um, undergoes um, huge cultural transformations, especially with the, um, the large amount of translation. Um, I just um, noticed a lot of points of similarity between the two periods uh, in the course of my reading and research and the teaching. Um, and um, so that's the sort of a kind of, um, I would call abstractly speaking, this is kind of one of the uh, things that started me, you know, uh, to become interested in, in doing a kind of a comparative study or um, kind of um, uh, in these two periods. Um, but more um, um, concretely speaking, I always think of a funny uh, story I had once with one of my friends uh, who's a a Chinese friend who's from Sichuan and (laughs) so we were talking about food you know and uh, we were talking about of course Sichuan food and then I was casually saying that um, you know Sichuan food uh, has not always been you know spicy la because the uh, pepper was from the new world and he got really really upset with me (laughs) You know, and he was just saying, you know, how, you know, but of course the Trump food has always been hot and spicy. I said, well, not not really, you know, because chili pepper is really from North America, you know, so it's really not all. Um, but then I was thinking of all this, um, the story in the uh, early medieval China in the third century, actually, when the, you know, the Taoi emperor was just uh, um, writing a kind of, uh, you know, kind of a communication sort of, you know, with one of his ministers and saying that people from from Shu, um, you know, the modern-day Sichuan, um, you know, their food is kind of a sweet. <laughs> they oh. like honey in their food. And, you know, I just, <laughs> I just, uh, this kind of, all this is a sort of um, kind of interesting experience to me because it kind of made me think of all the, uh, um, you know, the, the mobility of things, you know, food and, um, you know, kind of going back and forth and how, you know, what we consider really kind of a China, very Chinese today, you know, once upon a time was really a kind of a foreign uh, product or something that had come from very far. And after a while, you know, people sort of have this kind of short cultural memory and you tend to think, oh, this is, you know, this is Chinese or this is, you know, has always been the case, but it hasn't always been the case. And so I just thought, you know, the kind of immense, you know, sort of uh, uh, mobility of things, dislocation is, is just, you know, to use food as a kind of, a, um, you know, one example. I just find that so fascinating um, that things have changed so much. And so, you know, and people forgot about the origin, the place of origin and become integrated into um, your culture and what we consider as our own today. But, you know, we just just forgot, you know, um, exactly what it was like, you know, even just 200 years ago, 300 years ago. But anyway, I just, uh, this is, um, I don't know, I'm kind of a little bit of stream of consciousness. <laughs> okay. 
But that's one of the things that kind of got stuck in my mind when I was kind of started to think of of writing a book and talking about the two uh, periods in Chinese history and cultural history when um, really kind of things were undergoing tremendous change, uh, when people, foods, language, texts were in constant kind of um, um, mobility and dislocation and how people deal with it and how they incorporate new things in what they have um, and somehow these two periods just jump out as you know being so similar and yet so dissimilar uh, in some profound ways um, so in a way that's kind of how I started thinking about um, writing this book. That's great, thank you so much so one of the, I want to ask you a little bit about um, one of the ways that you talk about one of these periods and I ask this in particular because I just got back from a really wonderful wonderful, um, very challenging conference on the medieval globe. Um, and one, oh. of the, one of the issues that was um, really hotly debated or um, one of the issues that undergirded some of our conversations was mm-hmm. the idea of talking about periods that were not um, sort of that were not European historical periodizations as medieval mm-hmm. or not medieval and this is yes. uh, you certainly don't have to convince me because I'm completely on board but I'd love to hear because a choice of how to name periods is so fundamental yes. to our work how yes. did, how did you come to the decision to talk about this period of roughly as I think you said the first through the sixth or the seventh centuries um, as early medieval? Oh, it's this is <laughs> uh, the, the terminology, the periodization. That's just a kind of this is actually a, quite a wonderful coincidence. I just read an article in uh, PMLA and about the problem periodization. Um, you know, it's written by a historian. I think I think this is such a kind of a thorny problem. And you know, and I think the um, you know people who work in you know Chinese studies, I think we come up with with um, uh, you know period names like med- early medieval That's and right. you know, this right. is end of the middle period and early modern but now it's kind of being disputed That's and right. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure you know very well especially the period that you're working on That's That's right. Right. Exactly. yeah yeah exactly I just I really don't have you know um, in many ways I, I know that the, the medieval especially the word medieval I think because it really kind of immediately um, makes people think of uh, the medieval period in European history. And I think, and of course, in, in, in terms of real time, there's a big, you know, kind of disjunction. <laughs> and people would, you know, write, you know, talking about uh, medieval history, you know, European medieval history would think of 12th century or 13th century, even, you know, or 10th century. But this is really, in, um, in the Chinese case, it's, it's not, you know, um, you know, people often would say it's uh, from 1st century through 7th. So in many ways, I think I, I adopted this, you know, still the term medieval as a kind of a matter of convenience. It's very much like the, um, you know, the Buddhist term fang bian. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's, I admit it's not, probably not, um, you know, entirely kind of uh, satisfying, I think, but I just need a kind of a, um, I need a, I need a term to, you know, I can't just always say, you know, kind of a, um, first through 6th century or 7th century. But um, I think, you know, uh, leave, leaving aside um, the actual term itself, um, I admit it's debatable, and I could have said early middle period, for example. Um, but um, leaving aside the term itself, I do think there is some... Um, um, you know, a huge kind of change. That is, there's a justification for thinking of the first through seventh century as um, basically um, leaving uh, early China or classical period or antiquity, Chinese antiquity behind. Um, I think one of the, uh, tr- you know, kind of a really uh, profoundly kind of um, uh, transformative things that made this a really kind of a grand period of it, you know, on its own is the, um, again, technology, the advent of technology. And in this case, I'm thinking of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 
the invention of paper and also the availability of um, um, of paper, you know, kind of um, be, be, you know, paper become became a um, much kind of a cheaper uh, writing material, you know, replacing you know silk, which was very expensive, you know, which was still used in this period, but you know, kind of only um, very um, you know kind of special occasions, I would say. But also, it's so light and easy to carry around, um, you know. So in rather than having you know wood or bamboo slips you know and which is very very heavy and kind of hard to i just think the um the invention and a wider ability you know availability of paper as a as a cheaper writing material really changed a lot of things in this period and and also the um uh, spread of buddhism so these you know there are many other things you know social and kind of a, a um historical kind of um um conditions but i think these two things at least are, are two huge factors in making this period, you know, kind of um, um, very different from, from the, um, you know, classical or antiquity, uh, Chinese antiquity. Thank you so much. And it's actually really interesting that you mentioned paper. I think um, recently, mm-hmm. at least in the past mm-hmm. months, I've read several books now by people writing about travel and the mm-hmm. experience of travel in yeah. different, in very different geographical and temporal contexts uh-huh. that uh-huh. foreground the importance of paper mm-hmm. um, to this process. I think there's material yeah. for a really interesting comparative cultural history of paper yeah. and travel yeah. there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I especially think that you know, for um, I I cite you know you uh, at the opening of one of the uh, the book's chapters, I cited a bunch of letters by the famous calligrapher uh, Wang Xizhi, um, and you know he was you know kind of writing to his friend who was on military campaign again to the Sichuan area, and you know asking him all about uh, the local sites and everything. And I just thought that this this tremendous interest, um, you know, on the part of the audience back home and, you know, like learning what's going on, what did you see in your travel, you know, and for the traveler to kind of send a letter back, you know, to relate, you know, what he had, you know, witnessed with his own eyes. I I just think this would become much, much more difficult, you know, if people didn't have paper, you know, which is such a light kind of material, um, you know, to to use, you know, for this kind of back and forth. Um, Yeah, so I I just think, you know, paper is especially kind of uh, important, I guess, for traveler, you know, and away from the convenience, you know, of home. And, you know, if they want to write a letter to a home audience and, 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 you know, using paper is almost the, you know, imperative, I think, you know, rather than kind of getting a whole bunch of really heavy wooden or bamboo slips. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned seeing and you also mentioned Buddhism Mm -hmm. um, a little bit Mm -hmm. earlier. And that really, Mm -hmm. I think, nicely brings us um, into uh, the body of the book, um, which is, again, a really wonderful now, you set, for listeners, again, who haven't yet seen the book, the book is set up um, as um, would be uh, perhaps um, not super surprising um, for a book that very explicitly compares early medieval and 19th century China. Mm-hmm. It's set up into two broad um, parts. So part one, visionary journeys, and part two, encountering the world, which mm-hmm. treat these two, um, these two periods in turn. Now, the first part, visionary journeys, really mm-hmm. makes a point that will recur throughout the book, but is um, really focused on in a special way in these early chapters. And that's the importance of um, the the really important changes in modes of seeing the world, both Mm -hmm. literally and as articulated in language, um, that are formulated and that emerge in the context of this mobility and dislocation and travel um, Mm -hmm. that you're, I think, very beautifully um, bringing us um, into in this book. And the first chapter in this, uh, part one, looks specifically at the importance of... um, visualization and seeing in mental image making and specifically um, in its relation to Buddhism in early medieval China. Can you um, talk a little bit about the importance of Buddhism for um, visuality and seeing in um, early medieval China in this context? Okay. Um, 
All right. And that's um, a very broad question. So for the <laughs> listeners, this is the whole chapter yeah. talks about this. So and any part of yeah. this that you feel particularly interested in, feel free to speak yeah. to. Sure. Um, I think, well, um, maybe, maybe just a very broadly speaking, maybe, maybe two things about Buddhism that I think really, really, um, you know, um, sort of, uh, highlighted, um, the importance of seeing, um, both with uh, physical eyes and with minds, especially uh, with mind's eye. Um, one thing about Buddhism is that um, I think it's a, it, you, earlier you mentioned, you know, kind of it would be interesting to, to kind of uh, think of um, different cultures and do a comparative, you know, sort of uh, cultural studies um, and when we were talking about paper. And actually this is, um, after finished writing this book, I'm still kind of, um, you know, continuing you um, to think and work on some, you know, kind of the um, so-called leftover aspect, you know, when the book was sure. fit after the book was finished. But one thing I, I, that came to my attention recently, well, in my in my research, is that um, so in in early kind of a Christianity, I think it's very interesting that um, um, travel for Buddhist clergymen, you know, monks, and um, was not in, necessarily encouraged, and actually was sort of a discouraged, um, you know, in the um, in the early days of Christianity, and I was thinking that was fascinating for me and, and to see because I was thinking, you know, is really exactly the kind of opposite for for Buddhism in its you know sort of early years of you know kind of transmission spread in China. Uh, I was thinking of you know reading through this kind of biographies of eminent monks written by the sixth century um, monk uh, Hui Jiao, and uh, you know, and it just struck me how, you know, how many biographies of those monks. Well, he basically talked, you know, there's biographies of monks, you know, from um, second or even, uh, I think, I suppose mostly from second through uh, early years of sixth century. So several hundred monks. And um, he, uh, you know, he talked, you know, in many biographies of these monks, he talks about the importance of physical and, you know, undertaking physical travel in order to spread Buddhist doctrine. And in one of the biographies, I remember it's very interesting because the monk actually didn't really want to leave his um, monastery and his um, teacher, his master said, you know, if you are so attached to your monastery, how, you know, because he has been spending almost all his life there from, you know, since a young child. And so how could you, you know, possibly propagate um, the teaching of the Buddha to the rest of the world? And so, you know, I think it's really interesting that um, regards to uh, regards Buddhism, tra- physical travel um, is is very much kind of um, um, encouraged, um, and uh, indeed it almost like um, absolute must. Um, and um, um, it, it's it's really you know for the sake of uh, propagating uh, Buddhist doctrine, Buddhist teachings. And I think there was a lot of, you know. So in in one way, I think Buddhism you know was um, very huge phenomenon in this uh, period, in this early medieval period in Chinese history. And I was just thinking that, you know, the um, the, the traveling, the circulation and the, you know, going around of Buddhist clergy, monks, and also actually nuns, uh, Buddhist nuns as well. You know, I think that's also, you know, you can think of travel and the gender. And that was also a very good opportunity for women to uh, travel uh, without the um, accompanying of um, their fathers or, or husbands or children, you know, basically they could also uh, travel, uh, you know, through, um, you know, the you know what we can you know the, the basically the um the um uh within the boundaries of you know the china that even though at the time is politically divided but give them a very good reason to travel around so i think um travel and, and going around this physical mobility is certainly very much has to do with kind of uh buddhism and also the uh, the teaching and you know of buddhism and the spreading of buddhist dharma you know and all that um and the, the second thing I was thinking of um, that um, that I was saying, um, you know, that's really kind of um, um, coming out, you know, in the um, um, about Buddhism and seeing. Uh, so it's not just a. Um, 
going around and seeing the world, you know, and, you know, in kind of um, uh, as a part of your physical travel and propagating a Buddhist dharma. But also another thing is important thing for Buddhists, um, and this doesn't, it's not confined to Buddhist clergy, but also this is something that would be practiced by um, Buddhist laymen and laywomen as well, that is um, uh, mind travel, that is uh, meditation, especially the uh, meditative visualization uh, or visualizing meditation either way um, is this kind of a guanxiang process which was considered extremely important uh, method of uh, reaching um, you know uh, or being uh, you know reborn in the Buddhist paradise in the pure land and the pure land um, sect was very popular um, you know in this period uh, especially from I suppose from 4th century onward um, you know uh, because of the all the um, uh, kind of um, um, I guess the um, influence of this uh, very eminent monk Hui Yuan in, in South China. He resided in Lushan, but he had a very you know wide-ranging kind of influence, and he was a great believer of this uh, Pure Land Buddhism. You know, uh, anyway. So, but either, you know, both for for these you know fervent believers of Pure uh, Western Pure Land, you know, that is um, Amitabha, Amitabha Buddha's you know Pure Land, and also for. Um, even just you know people who not necessarily are meditating about the pure land or Amitabha Buddha's you know paradise, I think you know um, meditative visualization was a very important uh, thing you know for a way of practice for both Buddhist clergy and Buddhist uh, lay people you know lay believers in Buddhism as well. Um, and so this is basically a kind of um, um, seeing the world um, in your you know with mind's eye and it's kind of um, um, a very tremendous emphasis on visualizing and seeing in your mind. Um, so I think, you know, these. Uh, this is another, I think, you know, kind of a way for Buddhism to exert, you know, a tremendous influence on the Chinese, you know, people at the time. Um, and I, you know, of course, there are other things about, you know, Buddhism was already at the, even at this time was referred to as the Xiangjiao, the um, teaching of, you know, the doctrine of images, and there were a lot of, you know, actual um, visual images to aid people in the process of uh, meditative visualization and also aiding the Buddhist monks and nuns to, um, um, to preach. That is, they use, you know, kind of looking at the mural paintings, you know, and so especially we have a lot of uh, records from South China in the southern dynasties, I think famous painters would, um, you know, paint the uh, mural paintings in, in Buddhist temples and monasteries. And all these, I think, is, um, you know, it was quite a spectacle, I think, you know, when they were completing their, their there are a lot of stories about that. Um, and some kind of a legendary, you know, kind of painters, you know, how, you know, sort of supernatural feats, you know, sort of in their in the legend uh, about this kind of painters doing their murals and people would come to see when the murals are being completed and then you know uh, once you know they kind of added the eye of the dragon the dragon would fly away you know become alive and all that but I, I just think this is kind of you know of course this is you know kind of all the supernatural thing related to wonderful painting but also it shows that you know the kind of the sort of spectacle I think the audience you know I mean they all come to see the mural paintings you know in the Buddhist uh, temples and the monasteries, you know, and also the um, the making of Buddhist statues. All these are are part of a visual culture. And I think, you know, conceptually speaking, and also, um, you know, in terms of material culture, there's just a lot of emphasis on visualization and uh, seeing things both with physical eyes and especially importantly with your mind's eye to be able to, um, you know, in, you know do image making your mind and all this kind of um, uh, become really important part of the discourse of the day. That's great. And one of the things that's, um, I hope for listeners becoming clear, even in the way you're speaking about this is that this book as a whole really um, emphasizes the importance of, or at least for the reader, um, the mm-hmm. importance of juxtaposition is really clear. Um, and juxtaposition um, in the service of really sort of, as we briefly mentioned before, breaking down the boundaries that could traditionally carve up scholarship. And this chapter, um, we've heard um, a little bit now that you've, you've 
um, very generously spoken with us about um, paintings and Buddhist scriptures, but this chapter also really wonderfully weaves together um, these sources with Taoist writings and commentaries and fu, um, sort yeah. of rhapsodies, um, to tell this larger story about the importance of both mental and physical travel in the cu- larger culture of seeing, mm-hmm. which actually works um, really, really nicely. Now, the, the second chapter after this kind of extends this story um, in this uh, in the story of visuality and travel in this period by talking about um, a different set of a different but related set of materials, namely military campaign records, fu on travel, um, and uh, focusing also on uh, Fashian's Buddhist travel log and also a comparative case of um, Egeria. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Egeria's account. Um, yeah. And, and you, you use... <laughs> you use this really wonderful juxtaposition to um, argue for the importance of the emergence in this period of a set of um, what you call rhetorical schemata of seeing the world. And that's in particular a historical mode of seeing. So this was particularly interesting to me as a historian and also the importance of the heaven-hell paradigm. And mm-hmm. both of these go on to become important throughout the book. Um, can you talk f- um, for a little bit or as much as you want to about the importance of kind of history and a historical mode of seeing um, to travel literature in this period. And, and um, it, in particular, this comes up in the discussion of Xie Lingyun and his travel fu, um, which is really wonderfully yeah. translated in one of the appendices. So can you talk about that um, or any aspect of that that you're interested in for us? Oh, yes, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's um, the what what I refer to as historical mode of seeing is basically um, um, a kind of mode of seeing the world as um, almost like you know sites of history or historical sites, um, and that actually had been in the Chinese literary tradition, you know, part of the native literary tradition from the Han Dynasty uh, onward, you know, in a lot of the uh, rhapsodies on travel, so called travel fu or xing fu. Um, and Xie Lingyun's Fu um, um, on, you know, uh, talking about his travel and specifically of uh, kind of his business travel, I suppose, from the capital, Jiankang, and all the way to, um, you know, to this uh, general's, um, um, you know, uh, where the general's army was in um, uh, Xuzhou, I suppose. Um, so that's kind of, I think, his, Xie Lingyun is an interesting figure because in him, you know, he's, he's, he's a poet, he's also a, a kind of a really kind of a, um, very well versed in Buddhist doctrines and you know um, you know and even helped with translation of uh, one of the Buddhist scriptures so in him I, I actually we see both kind of modes of seeing one is you know the uh, kind of the what I call the traditional sort of a historical mode of seeing you know which can be seen very clearly in his full about his travel and uh, uh, along the route of his travel he sees a lot of sites and cities and when he sees those cities he kind of think of this is a meditation on the um, on the antiquity or thinking of what had what had happened at those sites so it's basically when when he saw those you know places um what he saw was actually kind of um is very much kind of what he saw was texts and a very specific kind of text that is you know historical texts and also the historical events that once had you know kind of uh taken place in um at those sites and i think this is a kind of a mode of seeing, I think, was um, in um, one saw a lot actually also on the uh, prose records of military campaign written at this period because um, as I was saying China was you know divided into you know north and, and south at the time and so I think one particularly interesting phenomenon was for um, for the um, a lot of people in South China, you know, under the rule of the um, you know uh, basically Han, you know, Southern dynasties, um, you know, the second and the third, you know, the the first of you know when the, after the Western Jin broke down in this um, in early fourth century, a lot of the Northerners just went to seek refuge in South China, and then their second, third generation descendants, so they would be born in South China, never having seen uh, North China, never having seen 
you know, the great Han Dynasty capitals, Luoyang and Chang'an. And then actually in late 4th century, early 5th century, there were several, a number of military campaigns being undertaken by the southerners, you know, and they actually penetrated in deep into the heartland of North China. And so these travelers, you know, who basically were um, officers, you know, and people who went with the, um, you know, generals on this military campaign, so they saw Luoyang and Chang'an for the first time in their life, you know, um, but they had read so much about Luoyang and Chang'an before. And so, and not just Luoyang and Chang'an, but also the other side. So I think, you know, this is a kind of a mode of seeing the world as both um, both familiar and strange. Um, I mentioned in my preface to the book, you know, I, I said that, you know, um, the German uh, writer, um, poet Goethe uh, went to Rome for the first time, but he had read about Rome um, so many, you know, um, so often. And so the first time he was in Rome and he was saying, wow, everything looks to me familiar and yet everything is new. So I thought that must have been, you know, what a lot of people felt, you know, the Southerners felt when they first went to North China and saw those cities and the sites. And so I think, you know, the, um, the what I call the historical mode of scene was particularly kind of relevant in their writings about those cities and the sites that they had read so much about uh, in dynastic histories, you know, in record, or records of various kinds. And now they saw for the first time with their own eyes what the place is actually like. And uh, so um, that and also, you know, um, they kind of attempt, they tend to adopt this sort of um, mode of um, historical mode of seeing that is they what when they see a place they don't just see the geography you know the landscape they see history mm-hmm. yeah so um, and this is you know and uh, and it happened so that you know there is a kind of a long kind of native literary tradition on this kind of mode of um, seeing a place and that is a huaigu and a meditation on this you know uh, size of history and so naturally they often adopt this kind of um, um, you know seeing and talking about a place in their writings um, yeah so um, this is I guess this is um, what you know um one one sort of way of seeing the world, but also I think um, when, when I was talking about Buddhist influence and all the you know importance of seeing in Buddhist doctrine, I guess what I should say, what I should also have mentioned is that um, this it's stress on um, seeing and its emphasis on seeing with your mind's eye, I think in some ways translated into the secular discourse um, into, this is a very kind of a, a little bit of simplifying it, but basically roughly is this that is um, um, the subjectivity is really really very important you know that is um, the the person's you know the seer's agency is very important in your encounter with the world so what you see often you know kind of um, is, is comes from the kind of person you are and this is something that kind of is taught in the uh, Buddhist doctrine I don't know if this all <laughs> kind of makes sense but you know Absolutely. it's uh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I, I just uh, I think you know this is you know so it's all this kind of emphasis on on your agency you know on the kind of person you are you know and that is you know um is really in many ways determines what you see in a strange place and I think this kind of uh, abstract you know kind of concept and idea um sort of um came to influence people um a great deal and you know conscious or unconsciously, unconsciously at this time. So I think another kind of, um, you know, and as I was saying that, you know, this all this becomes exemplified in Xilin Yun very clearly because he was a poet and he was, you know, um, also a, a very well-versed in Buddhist scripture and a kind of believer, you know, sort of in Buddhism himself. And so this came to bear on his writing of, you know, landscape poetry. Um, that is, you know, what he saw in this landscape, you know, whether you see you know, the kind of things you see there. Uh, so it's not just the physical mountains and water, but also he tends to, you know, he's trying to see more than just that. Um, I think in, in some ways you could say that this is a kind of a Buddhist influence that's, you know, kind of a, um coming to surface um, because um, you see some, you know, kind of um, um, 
deeply, you know, sort of deeply embedded truths or certain kind of, um, I would say, you know, kind of um, something, you know, more than just the physical, you know, kind of rocks and, and water and trees, but you also see, you know, patterning, you also you see kind of, you know, principle kind of manifested in nature. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's one of the ways in which this kind of emphasis, you know, kind of on seeing uh, with imagination, with mind's eye, you know, always kind of talked about in Buddhist uh, scriptures. I think this is one of the ways in which it um, was manifested. Um, that is, you, you, you bring kind of your own kind of vision to landscape. So there is a kind of, you see, uh, as a result, you see much more than just a bunch of rocks and the trees. And just uh, yeah, lakes and rivers. Yeah, so you know that's that's a kind of kind of you you know you you bring your vision to landscape and a kind of it illuminates the landscape. So it's a kind of a coming together of this person and landscape, you know, um, together and all you know the landscape as a result is kind of illuminated because of what you are or who you are. That's wonderful and and. Um Thank you so much. That's, I think, a really beautiful way of putting it. So, Xiling Yun, I won't um, ask you too much about this because I want to also get to the wonderful 19th century material <laughs> which builds on this. But one of the things um, for listeners who haven't gotten a chance to read the book, um, you call um, Xie uh, sort of a, or his poetry, a poetry of purgatory yes. um, in the next chapter. And that really kind of highlights one important thread throughout here, um, which is um, in addition to the historical mode of seeing the importance of the kind of what you call the heaven and hell paradigm. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. So, and not just in um, the wonderful travelogue um, that you describe of Fashian, but also later on um, in the next chapter, the ways that this theme of um, heaven and hell and this sort of um, sort of rhetorical mm-hmm. paradigm of heaven and hell also mm-hmm. goes on to shape um, Xieling Yun's poetry. And then we also actually see that coming in um, obliquely or sometimes directly um, in the material in the 19th century. Yes, yes. That comes up later in the book. So let's for a moment um, move then um, to the part two of the book, which is Encountering the World. And here mm-hmm. you give us, um, I think, a really beautifully parallel, but not um, not pedantically parallel, right? I mean, not not parallel for the sake of formal parallelism, but really wonderfully evocative um, re-envisioning of these themes of seeing and dislocation and juxtaposition and travel as they emerge now in the context of a very different um, group of people. And this is so in this section, which um, incorporates two chapters, a prologue and an afterword, um, you're looking at historical writing, ethnographic and geographic accounts, poetry, diaries, travel logs, um, to explore sort of several issues that come up in encounters with the foreign, but specifically the foreign um, as it is manifest in um, sort of Chinese encounters with Europe um, and the Americas. Um, right. So this, this set of chapters really looks very closely at how people were dealing with race, with gender, with ordering the world. Um, so it's just a really wonderful, um, wonderful set of studies as well. Now, this focuses, especially the fourth chapter, um, focuses in particular on uh, the first travelers who went overseas in the 1860s, right? And this is yes. you introduce us to um, Bin Chun in particular and uh-huh. uh, Zhang Deyi. Yes. Can you talk a little bit for us about um, who these two people were and why they're so important to the story? Okay. Um, well, um, just um, um, well, simply put, Bin Chun was actually a kind of a senior uh, Manchu official um, being sent to, um, and Zhang Deyi was at the time um, was a young student actually of, of um, you know, Tong Wenguan uh, in the uh, 19th century. And uh, so the importance of these two people is that um, basically they were the, the very first uh, people who, 
were sent by the uh, Manchu uh, Qing court to Europe, and for the uh, very explicitly for the for the specific reason of um, seeing things and uh, you know looking and seeing things, looking at you know and take a look at those countries and come back and report what you saw. That's basically their mission. Um, you know, report all the customs. You know the you know the state of things and what it is like. I think you know. So they were really kind of the very uh, first kind of official, you know, sort of um, you know mission um, sent to sent to Europe through European countries at the time. And I think for me, though, their particular interest lies in that. Um, before them, I think I briefly mentioned that in the uh, one of, in the prologue uh, to this part two of the chapter is that there are some accounts of you know Chinese um, uh, authored accounts of Euro- Europe, um, but. It's. Um, I think one of them was really preserved in in the court and as a manuscript, and nobody had much access to it. And also, I think they were kind of authored uh, something written by a um, a sailor or kind of. Um, and the interesting thing about uh, Bin Chun and and Zhang Deyi is that you know because Bin Chun authored a kind of a bunch of poems, and also he had he he kept a diary. So it's really the very uh, first kind of official sort of. Uh, not only was the first official kind of a people sent there to to go through so many countries, but he came back with writings, and he was also one of the first, um, I would say, you know, kind of a, um, Chinese elite members of Chinese elite who was you know officially sent. And so I think the importance of their writings is is that um, you know simply put, there was just not very much you know textual. There's no not much textual kind of tradition for them, you know, to, to either, you know, to kind of, to, they didn't even have many, you know, books to read or, you know, things to learn from, you know, about those European countries. So they were really kind of, in a way, um, rather, um, you know, they had rather fresh eyes, <laughs> just put it that way. So that, that's, you know, because quickly people just caught on, you know, quickly, you know, there are more members of elite going to Europe, to Americas, and they came back, they all wrote a lot, and they published, they actually put them in print, with very popular kind of printed editions of travel accounts going on. And very quickly, I think people began to have a lot of, you know, like a textual tradition already to, um, you know, to kind of to look at even before before they physically visited those countries, for Bin Chun and Zhang Deyi in early nineteen, uh, early eighteen um, sixties, they were really the very first people to see and write about the European countries, and you know, and for Zhang Deyi, the Americas as well. So I think that's the, the freshness is what you know really kind of um, um, it made them very you know um, attractive to me because I just uh, want to see you know kind of how do you talk about how do you talk about about a foreign country and see things, you know, how do you talk about something, you know, just bluntly put, something that you have never seen before and that's completely beyond your horizon of expectation. How do you talk about them? How do you write about them? That's what really kind of, uh, you know, where do you find the language to talk about that something that's so alien and foreign to you? And that's what kind of um, um, interested me. And, um, you know, um, and I always think of the, the most kind of one of the most funny um, kind of uh, uh, poems I encounter from this period, not by Bin Chun or Zhang Deyi a little later, um, but you know, but I think it's very exemplary. This guy talking about um, you know um, uh, news, you know, in paintings and statues, you know, and he just. Uh, this is yeah. This is not just something because I think it's easy to talk about the train. Um, you can just say this is you know kind of you know like a this is a train as as a machine and you know it's like um, it's exotic, it's new, but it's very talkable in many ways. But how? But but the news. I think this implies a whole set of cultural, aesthetic traditions and. Uh, you know, and it's so profoundly alien, and you basically have no vocabulary for it. And this is so. You know, I, I, I just interest. I'm just so interested in the moment when people encounter things, not just the, like you know, um, mechanical things and you know, machines or you know, uh, high-rise buildings, but also when they encounter something profoundly alien uh, in conceptual terms and cultural aesthetic terms. How do they actually, you know, manage to find the vocabulary? Um, to talk about it. Um, 
And that in some ways, you know, is connected, you know, and this is one of my arguments in the book is that I think, you know, again, uh, early medieval period and Buddhism provide a lot of the vocabulary um, that they could, they find that they could use, you know, to talk about something alien and strange, um, even though this kind of, um, this model is quickly kind of, I think, being pushed or stretched to its utmost limit and almost, you know, kind of break Breaking down, I think, as one can see very clearly in Huang Zunxian's poetry, um, that is, you know, they they they. So in some ways, they both use this, you know, traditional mode of seeing, you know, and this um, heaven hell kind of a paradigm of seeing. Um, uh, but also at the same time, nineteenth um, century was, um, you know. New, unprecedented, new for Chinese, new for Europeans and Americans too, because it's a post-industrial revolution world, and people were living, you know, in this, you know, world where the traditional kind of order was quickly breaking down. It's a really new world dawning for people all across, you know, the globe. And so it was doubly kind of new and shocking to the Chinese, um, you know, because this is a foreign country and also because what's going on, you know, worldwide, you know, Europe, America, you know, they see this post-industrial or industrial revolution going on. And so they try to still use, you know, they, they go back to something they know, which is this uh, Buddhist kind of paradigm of seeing the world, you know, in, you know, either in, in paradiso terms or in hellish terms, um, they employ a lot of vocabulary and images from, you know, early medieval period still, because this is something that they could, they can still turn back to, they know how to do. And gradually, however, I think as their knowledge of Europe and America became um, deeper and they realized that the, you know, the existent paradigm of seeing things and talking about things no longer sufficed. And so, you know, you see cracks, you know, in their representation, uh, tensions, um, you know, so this is roughly kind of, um, this is what really fascinates me and kind of, this is roughly what I try to kind of talk about in the uh, in part two of the book. That's great. Now you um, briefly mentioned this poet, um, who wrote about painted nudes. This is Zhang Zui, is that, is that right? Yes, Zhang Zui, yes. And who is just wonderful. And, and for listeners, um, you give us wonderful um, examples of his poems, not just on nudes, but also about women's mustaches and tap water <laughs> and zoos and Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. I mean, this is just a fantastic archive. Um, and it also allows us to get into um, the chapter that, or the, the chapter five, um, the really uh-huh. you know, substantive chapter after that really closes the book before the afterward, which refocuses attention from um, just kind of, well, it's not like you've only, you know, you've just looked at prose throughout the book, right? The whole <laughs> book talks about poetry, but this yes. is a chapter that really focuses on the issue and the question of why poetry um, in these travel accounts, right? What work was being done in these poems and these poetic accounts that these travelers were composing in addition to and juxtaposed posed with um, sort of prose notes and and other yes. kinds of genres. So, um, and this was a really, really fascinating um, part of the book. And Zhang Zui also is one of um, one of the people who is uh, sort of emphasized, or one of the case studies um, that's very important in this chapter, uh-huh. along with Huang Zunxian, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, now, can you talk a little bit about... Um, Zhang Zui's, in particular, his bamboo branch songs on London. And then <laughs> yes. this is um, the idea. Of, so the questions for listeners like um, like me, who may never have heard of a bamboo branch song, this was actually really fascinating because one of the things you're doing here um, in asking, as, as you've just uh, asked us, you know, where do you find the language to talk about the alien? One mm-hmm. of the ways that these um, poets and scholars found the language is by using um, sort of rhetorical devices and forms um, from other contexts yeah. in which, um, and one of these was the bamboo branch song. So can you, <laughs> can you very briefly talk, yeah. what, is, what is a bamboo branch song? And um, can um, you say a little bit about this, this bamboo branch songs on London? 
Um, sure, yeah. Bamboo branch song is basically a kind of um, um, one of those kind of poetic subgenres that you know by this point, by nineteenth century, had had a long kind of a history, and probably first of you know was. I think it first sort of appeared in the um, somewhere in um, in the uh, Tang Dynasty. I think maybe around a um, century or so. I'm not quite sure exactly, but I think that's that's pr- probably. What, but uh, you know, to simply put, it is a kind of um, um, you know short um, quad. It's basically a short poem. It's a usually it's a quatrain that is you know four line, <laughs> you know, and usually uh, each line has seven characters. So it's one of those uh, seven-syllable line and a four-line kind of a quatrain uh, poems. But it's it's a characteristic. It's basically that it's 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 really used to uh, talk about the local customs of a particular place. Um, and later on, and people actually also use it to talk about even just one site. For example, there's a, there are a lot of so-called bamboo branch songs about uh, the West Lake, for example. But I think um, to uh, just to uh, simply kind of um, summarize the, um, I think the importance of the bamboo branch songs is that it's kind of, it really uses a simple kind of, you know, um, language and a simple poetic form to talk about um, the characteristics of a locale, uh, you know, the local customs, you know, and the local kind of uh, quirks and eccentricities even of a particular place. And a kind of, uh, um, when you write a bamboo branch song about a place, it kind of, you know, the assumption is almost like, you know, you really know the place very, very well, and you can, you know, kind of uh, describe, you know, the local, um, all the local, um, you know, um, you know, interest, you know, local interest, interesting things about this particular particular locale and you sometimes even pepper you know the poem maybe with some kind of a local you know dialectical terms you know and I think Zhang Zhu uh, use a lot of you know those very funny kind of um, transliteration of you know English terms um, I, <laughs> I just remember that one pound is one bang or something that's like right, that. that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so but the thing is I mean he you know I don't think he really knows um, you know London all I mean, he knows London and doesn't really know London, but that's kind of, I think that's, um, it's not just a, you know, uh, a, his a problem of just in Zhang Zui's case, but, you know, he obviously spent time there and he talked about the, uh, what he considered kind of particularly strange or particularly kind of uh, a noteworthy of the city of London. Um, but I think, you know, um, his bamboo branch sounds about London actually is is a kind of um, is um, the reason why it's interesting is because it's um, it. Uh, it um, it in, um, contains you know this whole series of poems contains both poems and uh, lengthy prose notes. Um, so for tap water, she, he would write a quatrain, you know, a poem talking about tap water, and then he would also include a kind of prose note explaining what tap water is, you know, and how it works uh, to his uh, home audience. Um, and but I think he's he's a very you know funny character because uh, he really exemplifies what I, you know, kind of uh, refer to as the heaven-hell paradigm, the one extreme that is, you know, it's, I, I think I talked about his fear and the loathing, <laughs> you know. About London because he's really kind of, but it's funny because his prose notes actually are very full of you know rather you can detect a tone of admiration for the um, you know for the all sorts of new things you know inventions make mechanical inventions and all sorts of new new phenomena you know he you know he considers kind of marvelous on the other hand his poem kind of are always kind of um, um, portraying these new things in quite, you know, explicitly hellish terms, especially one, I think, one poem about a factory, and he really kind of describes it as if, you know, it were hell. And um, and so he is 
his his series of I think is a very kind of a conflicted attitude. If you only look at the poems, you think that oh my god, you know, he's entirely all about you know this whole world in London, this European world, the Western world is very hateful and awful, you know. And but when you look at the prose notes, um, you know, it's almost like they're segregated two you know two segregated things. If you look at the prose notes, it's often the tone is neutral, and sometimes you can detect admiration for these all these wonderful new um, inventions. You know, like tap water, um, and so I think you know he's one poet who really kind of exemplifies this heaven hell paradigm. Because I think this again comes from Buddhism, and you know, and back in early medieval times, you know, when people go, you know, kind of uh, conceive of you know this uh, cosmos, you know, the Buddhist cosmos as you know heaven and uh, and and hell, which were extremely you know all the vivid you know descriptions of heaven and hell in this time um, were extremely kind of I think fascinating for the contemporaries and then they when they go to a strange place a foreign place they tend to adopt this way of seeing um you know that is seeing a place either as heaven or as hell but it's often there's no um in between um so you know that's how fashion sort of conceived um you know india central india as a a paradise because that's the birthplace of buddha um but you know all around central india he had to go through hell literally oftentimes, you know, to get to that place. Um, but he, you know, it's almost like a way of, uh, it, it becomes a way of seeing and and thinking of foreign alien world. It's either as terrible as hell or as wonderful as heaven, but it either is exaggerated. And oftentimes there's no kind of a really... Um, encounter of the foreign as you know as another human world you know and at least you know you don't see this sort of um, kind of a um, description in those you know the early medieval travel account you know such as the one by Fa and I think in some ways this kind of uh, seeing the foreign world either as heaven or as hell again kind of re- you know you, you can see that very clearly in the 19th century all these encounters with um, European Americas you know this this um, it's Either you know the you know like a person like a Bin Chun would describe his um, experience as paradisal, you know, kind of wonderful, absolutely you know great. You know, he talks about the Buckingham Palace, you know, all in this you know great you know terms of you know like encountering immortals, you know, in the in a Western paradise, you know, very much still using the Buddhist paradise terms. Um, and at the same time, you also see people like Zhang Zuyi, who's talking about all sorts of things, you know, he saw in London in hellish terms in his poems, even though Zhang Zuyi is a kind of uh, fascinating because in his prose notes, he betrayed a kind of, you know, very uneasy admiration for those new inventions. But he seems to be not able to bring the two together or to see the Western world, you know, like as just as another human world, you know, just like human like Chinese. No, I think this has to wait until Huang Zunxian and only after he um lived um in the Western world for many years. And then he gradually I think he he is moving toward that kind of, you know, um you know, kind of a new, um, I think, conception of the foreign world. You know, not exaggerated like like a paradise. You know, or like hell, but it's it's you know it's different and it's human. Um, so I I just find that kind of um, um, you know um, it's it's just a you know just to say that I find that really kind of uh, fascinating. This way of you know thinking of and and uh, um, and seeing the uh, the foreign foreign cultures yeah and that's actually that's probably a perfect place to wrap up um with the mention of Huang Zunxian for <laughs> listeners um so I don't want to take up too much more of your time Xiaofei and I know we've taken up about an hour so um I'll wrap this up um or we can wrap this up now but for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book there are in this final chapter there are wonderful um very evocative very moving um discussions of um not just these uh, bamboo branch songs about London and um, mm-hmm. poems and accounts by um, Wang Tao, but also mm-hmm. um, 
especially three very wonderful poems by Huang Dunxian, one mm-hmm. on arranging flowers, um, one on about mm-hmm. called A Ballad of Taiwan, and then one on his little daughter that each encapsulate um, in a really wonderful way precisely what you just said, this sort of change um, mm-hmm. in describing the foreign that goes from mm-hmm. explicitly heaven and hell to a, a more, um, more of an environment of conflict, sort of conflicting emotions, conflicting attitudes. Yes. Um, and um, sort of conflicting uh, sort of emotional experiences about the juxtaposition of the foreign and the familiar. Um, so thank you so much, Xiaofei. I know there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and I know we could talk for easily another two hours um, just on the poems and the translations. And But is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you want to specifically flag for listeners um, who have or haven't had a chance to read the book? Oh, uh, well, um, actually, I think, I, no, I, I actually, I think, um, as you said, I think, you know, it's, um, it's um, you know, Huang Zhenxian seems like, um, you know, indeed, it's you see a kind of um, a gradual kind of a change moving from this heaven-hell paradigm to a much more kind of complicate, complicated and conflicted sort of, you know, um, um, you know, discourse, yeah, in Huang Zunxian's poems, all I want to say, I guess, I guess, you know, the only thing I would like to just add is that, um, um, I guess, you know, I, I do argue that poetry, I think, is a particularly kind of, I think it's, um, um, I think late 19th century poetry is really, as I've been reading more of it lately, I just think it's so, it's a very fascinating kind of a world, actually, that probably, de- I just think it deserves a lot more uh, study, because I think this is uh, when poetry is something that um, really kind of people use, you know, to uh, try to make sense and, you know, and to order um, this very, very different kind of a new world um, that's happening around them. And I think, and oftentimes it comes across as a very kind of strangely moving and very effective, you know, kind of a genre actually to deal with all the new things that are happening and also, also to see the kind of cracks and to see the kind of gaps and the tensions, you know, in this, um, in the, you know, sort of the lung and the kind of um, rhetorical kind of uh, strategies um, and how they use it to, you know, basically to um, come to terms with what is, you know, all the new things that are happening um, around them. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And is that, um, so what's next for you? Are you working on that right now or is there another project right now that's particularly inspiring you? Um, that's actually, um, I've been working on 19th century, um, yeah, um, um, a memoir, you know, from the uh, 19th century, late 19th century, um, and uh, um, kind of that's that's a project I've been working on. It's kind of translating and also um, a kind of autobiography, actually, from late 19th century, which is, you know, on um, manuscript and never published and, and, you know, in the modern kind of punctuated modern typeset edition, which I kind of discover and find really fascinating. And also, um, I, you know, I'm also working on um, 19th century poetry as well. That's um, a, a project <laughs> I've been kind of doing, but mainly right now I've been, um, the, actually the prim- primarily, I guess, my main energy is devoted to the, uh, also to the three kingdoms, <laughs> I guess that's another kind of passion I have and yeah um, and that is Three Kingdoms again from you know the, the, the historical period of Three Kingdoms all the way to the 21st century actually so that's wow. that's yeah <laughs> Um, Well, best of luck to you on that. Um, It sounds like a wonderful set of projects. And this has been a really wonderful book. So thank you again um, for just an extraordinarily rich and evocative study and for making the time today to talk with me about it. Thank you very much, Carla, for all the wonderful questions and the really pleasant conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.